This is 89.1 WEMU, and I'm David Fair, and welcome into the Green Room. Dakota Access in Keystone out west, the Line 5 pipeline in the Straits of Mackinac, and in Washtenaw County, the Rover and Nexus lines. All across the country, people are becoming more aware of pipelines and, in many cases, protesting them. In a special Green Room series, Barbara Lucas is going to explore the various perspectives on pipelines. Are they symbols of an extractive energy system that is unsustainable or a crucial component of a healthy economy? In this first installment, we narrow our focus to explore the question, why are there so many pipelines? We hear a lot about oil and gas pipelines, but being underground, we don't often see them. I did manage to catch DTE's Nexus pipeline being buried on the east side of Ypsilanti. It was impressive. Huge machines lowered the three-foot diameter pipe into a long trench three feet underground. When completed, Nexus will run for 255 miles. And apparently there's a lot more like this under our feet already. And then this is the pipeline map. David Halteman is Director of Emergency Services at Washtenaw County. This de depicts uh, both crude oil, natural gas, and proposed natural gas lines. Now this proposed one is the Rover Pipeline coming down through Washtenaw County on the west side of, uh, through Dexter Township all the way down through Freedom Township. It's Halteman's job to keep us safe should a pipeline leak or the fuel catch on fire. He needs to know the pipeline routes and what they carry. On the map here you can see they're, they're color-coded. We have red for the crude oil product and blue for natural gas. The lines crisscross the county and the state like a web. In Michigan, there's currently around 126,000 miles of pipelines, distribution lines that connect to homes and businesses, and big transmission lines that go from state to state in Canada. Those interstate lines transport a confusing assortment of different products, mostly in gas form, primarily natural gas, but occasionally other gases, such as hydrogen gas and landfill gas. Michigan also has thousands of miles of pipelines that transport energy products in liquid form, including crude oil and refined petroleum products, such as gasoline, diesel, and jet fuel. And it's not just pipelines that are all over. There are about 40 compressor stations. They keep the gas pressurized to move it along its route, like the one I stopped by on East Michigan Avenue in Ypsilanti and wells. In southeast Michigan alone, nearly 800 oil or gas wells have been drilled, such as this one, pumping away in a farm field in Saline. And underground storage. Michigan has 53 depleted gas or oil fields now being used to hold natural gas, more than any other state. Looking at the map, I realized that a house I lived in for two decades sits right next to one of them. All this infrastructure in our midst is owned by a dizzying array of different companies. For instance, the six different pipelines in Freedom Township are owned by Enbridge, Amico, Marathon, Wolverine, Panhandle, and Consumers Energy. And the web of infrastructure is growing. Five more pipeline projects are currently being built in Michigan. And we're not alone. In the U.S. since 2005, there's been a 71% growth of natural gas production. DTE pipeline expert Steve Hofe says that's because coal-fired power plants' days are numbered. In the electric generation sector, um, a number of utilities pretty much throughout the Midwest and, and, and throughout the country for that matter 
are, are facing an aging coal-fired generation fleet, uh, many of which are 50 to 60 years old and are, are much less efficient and much more costly to operate than newer technology, um, primarily renewables and natural gas. DTE's proposal to build a new natural gas plant in East China Township is part of this transition away from coal. Hope says not only are new pipelines needed to carry more gas, but to address a change in where the gas is coming from. We are um, quickly um, sourcing more of our natural gas supplies from the Appalachian region and less from areas like the Gulf Coast and, and, and the western portion of the U.S. He says that's because the Appalachian supply, fracked gas coming from Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia, is new and very productive. The western sources are old and supply less. The other very important aspect of this is cost. So in the Appalachia Basin, natural gas can be produced at about 50% of the cost that it had been, you know, that we had been facing from other uh, supply areas. Michigan Environmental Council's Kate Madigan serves as director of the Michigan Climate Action Network. She says new extraction technologies have spurred not only natural gas, but oil production too. The tar sands oil in Alberta is not easy to extract. It's, it's a really thick, you know, peanut butter-like consistency. And so it's only been in recent history that it's been... Um, profitable to extract it. So once that, once the technology, um, you know, was figured out to be able to do that, that's why we've been seeing this coming to market. Mike Schreiberg is Great Lakes Regional Executive Director for the National Wildlife Federation and a member of the Michigan Pipeline Safety Advisory Board. We meet at a coffee shop near his office in downtown Ann Arbor. The constraint right now is not getting it out of the ground, it's moving it to, to where it needs to be. The problem is once you've got this product moving, it has to have a place to go. And so it can be self-feeding in that way. There's got to be a way to move the product. It really can't sit uh, because you have that backup. In fact, to relieve pressure to prevent a leak or explosion, gas may be released or vented at the pipeline or compressor station. Or burned off. That's called flaring. We saw that a little bit in the Appalachia region prior to the Rover project coming online earlier this year, and, and it still exists to some degree because there's a, there's a number of producers that are awaiting additional infrastructure to be able to move their product to a market. Surprisingly, it's not so much from our energy usage that profit is made. Here's DTE spokesperson Pete Turns. We charge customers the, uh, for gas the same price that we pay for gas. Uh, so it's a direct pass-through. Apparently more of the profit is in the new construction. Here's Mike Schreiber. They get, and it varies, but you know, 10, 20 percent margins or something like that. So that's where their big money comes in, is in those infrastructure investments. And you know, there was a time the system was set up because you wanted um, utilities to invest in infrastructure. Otherwise, you know, you wanted to make sure that we had enough electricity for the grid and all these pieces. Where environmentalists see the profit motive behind pipelines, the fossil fuel companies see pipelines as serving the public good, providing inexpensive and reliable domestically produced energy. 
fueling our cars, heating our homes, making the American dream possible. Ryan Duffy is a spokesperson for Enbridge. 30% of the crude oil on Line 5 goes to Detroit area refineries, and so that's used for cars and for jet fuel and all those kind of things. And then the 6,000 other products uh, made from what's supplied off, off the lines as well. So there's a huge list. I mean, you'd be surprised. It's, it's uh, perfume, it's prescription drugs, it's all kinds of car parts. All of those things, you know, to take vacations up to northern Michigan uh, that we use, kayaks and fishing poles and all those kind of things. It's not just that so many consumer goods contain gas or oil-derived ingredients. It's that our factories are usually powered by fossil fuels. So regardless of whether it's made of plastic or corn or even ground-up recyclables, fossil fuels have been burned to manufacture and transport it. In fact, on average, 60% of our carbon footprint comes from the food and consumer products we buy. So is the web of interstate transmission pipelines that feed the American way of life a good thing or a bad thing? And who decides if we need more of them? Here's DTE's Steve Hove. Federal government through the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission has the authority to approve or disapprove of applications to construct natural gas pipelines. And the same goes for oil pipeline proposals. It's the feds that have the say, not local governments and individual landowners. In fact, if a court decides the pipeline will serve the public good, it can legally take the needed land through eminent domain. But when it comes to pipelines, what actually is the public good? That is a hotly debated question to be explored in the next part of our series on pipelines. In the Green Room, I'm Barbara Lucas, 89.1 WEMU News. Join us in upcoming months for more of our Green Room series on pipelines. The Green Room is heard on the last Friday of each month, and you'll find our archive of shows at WEMU.org. I'm David Fair, and this is 89.1 WEMU-FM and WEMU-HD1 Ypsilanti.